0: the Magic and Alchemy podcast where we talk about witchcraft, setting intentions, forgotten folklore and mythology. Created by Tamed Wild, Magic and Alchemy is a collection of stories, rituals and articles crafted by a variety of creators and writers including myself, Kate Ballou, and my co-host Kristen Listenby. Welcome back to the Magic and Alchemy podcast. I'm Kate Ballew.
1: And I'm Kristen Lisenby.
0: Happy Saturn into Pisces Day, Kristen. Happy Mercury Day. I'm so happy to be here chatting with you. How's it going?
1: Yeah. Same. <laughs> Everything's good. Happy Mercury Day. Uh, You know, right before we hopped on to record, I realized that when this episode airs, I'm going to be in California, hopefully, I know, hopefully soaking (laughs) up all the Central Coast sunshine and visiting my old stomping grounds in San Luis Obispo, um, which is so exciting and long overdue, but I realized that I didn't check the astrology when I booked this trip which is so unlike me. Mm -hmm. So I feel like our discussion today was divinely timed.
0: Absolutely. And when we're recording this, we haven't yet been in Salem together, but when this airs, we will have all been in Salem together. And that makes me so excited. Um, But first, what is our listener question today?
1: So... Kate and I, listeners, frequently get asked about the relationship between writing and magic. And so a question popped up, how do you work with word witchery? Kate, what do you think?
0: Yes, I love talking about this. And this is such a frequent topic of discussion for us. Um, And we actually have that whole episode on word witchery back in season two, I believe, for this Mm Very reason, um, and I know you feel the same way, but these two things are just completely linked. You know, for example, spell and spelling, love it. Um, mm-hmm. But last month, I wrote a piece for the Tamed Wild blog about spell casting and how to write spells, sort of like a 101. So, listeners, if you're interested, definitely check that out. But Honestly, at the core of this craft, I think if you're looking to begin a writing practice, the best way, um, and please don't be mad at me, (laughs) listeners, is just to write, you know, like get writing, roll up your sleeves, you know, take a poetry class, read a book on craft Use a portal to step through, like, rhythm, um, and this can be a truly magical sort of embodied experience, you know, um, read poems and prose and see what tugs on your body and your heartstrings. And Emily Dickinson said that she knew that she was reading a poem If she felt as if the top of her head had been taken off. So learning to feel that sort of intuitive energy in your body um, through exploration could be a great place to start. And if meter is calling to you, like I just mentioned, definitely visit our interview with Annie Finch to learn more, um, the poetry witch. And, you know, additionally, Kristen and I both host writing workshops and digital creative covens for this very reason. Um, I also always love to recommend the subscription box from Tamed Wild, and this can kind of help you hone in to your own ritual skills. Um, I write the monthly rituals for the box, and so I'm always sure to imbue a little bit of word witchery. But I think the most important thing in my mind to mention is sincerity. Crafting your own spells and saying them aloud, it's so important. And it might feel totally strange at first, but you know, five, 10, even one year from now, you're going to look back and you're just going to be glad that you started and and that working through it can make all the difference. What do you think, Kristen?
1: Yeah, I love all of those suggestions. And I just want to add, um, for the people who ask how to break into the world of witchy writing um, from like a professional standpoint, um, and I think the best advice I can give there is just sort of what you said, like persistence, patience, and also connecting with fellow writers. Like you said, join writing communities. Take writing classes with your favorite word witches, uh, either in person or virtual, The feedback from these spaces I think is priceless and it's also a way to network if you (laughs) hate networking (laughs) because it just feels like a lot more natural to be discussing your work in a group of fellow writers and creatives. Um, And then, you know, if you want to write for witchy magazines, read those magazines, get to know their voice. There is also a wonderful newsletter you can sign up for at AuthorsPublish.com that will send you a list of journals and magazines, uh, books, blogs that are looking for pitches and are open to submissions. If you love a specific book, look up who the publisher is, find out if they are open to submissions and who the contact is, and then submit, submit, submit. I would also say that creating a website for yourself is pretty important. Um, Even if it's just like a landing page, I think it helps to legitimize your work and your voice bonus if you create a blog to go along with it, because that Mm. blog will not only motivate you to keep writing, but it might be that blog that catches a future client's eye. So like you said, Kate, really the more writing you put out, the better. And there are so many platforms now There's, of course, Instagram, um, a personal blog. Wattpad is great as well. And there's also Substack or Patreon if you want to dip your toes into a paid platform uh, once you have a bit of an audience. Mm
0: -hmm. I love all of that. and little shameless plug. I teach a numinous newsletters course every summer. So for folks wanting to practice word witchery in that way, definitely, um, get in touch and stay tuned.
1: Yeah. Kate's newsletter classes are amazing. She's definitely a newsletter, witch. <laughs> um, you've taught me so much. So, um, I can definitely, definitely back you up there. And it just feels so fitting to be talking about writing and word witchery for our listener question today because we have a fellow writer here with us today.
0: Yes, Juliana McCarthy joins us today for this episode for a deep dive into the astrological. With so many potent transits happening this spring, we called on Juliana for her insights and expertise on the subject of the stars. For more than 20 years, Julianna McCarthy has been studying and practicing evolutionary astrology, finding it to be a powerful tool for self-exploration and examining how we relate to others. She loves working with people to help them understand their authentic selves, their complexities, gifts, karma, and life paths. In particular, she finds astrology to be helpful for major transitions, unexpected life changes, and for better understanding relationships, romantic and otherwise. Juliana also practices energy healing using a blend of Reiki and shamanic methods. She helps facilitate powerful breakthroughs by clearing blockages around physical, spiritual, relational, and emotional difficulties. A longtime student of Tibetan Buddhism, she's an avid meditator and spiritual practitioner. Juliana runs a popular Instagram feed, at ethereal culture, and she gives talks regularly and leads various workshops and retreats. If you're interested in online talks, videos, and classes, definitely visit her Patreon page. She also wrote a book that we'll talk about called The Stars Within You, a modern guide to astrology published by Roost Books and distributed by Penguin Random House. Juliana is an old friend, someone I've turned to for support with my own chart, and her poetic genius is an inspiring lens through which to view the stars.
1: In this conversation, Juliana weaves in myth perspectives on Pluto, eclipses, the nodes, and retrogrades, all while discussing her background and personal experiences as an astrologer.
0: Juliana joined us from her home in LA via Zoom. Welcome back to the Magic and Alchemy podcast. I'm Kate Baloo, And I'm Kristen Lizenby. And today we have astrologer, author, and energy healer, Juliana McCarthy of Ethereal Culture with us. Hi and welcome, Juliana. It's so good to see you.
1: Hi, thank you so much for having me. Yeah, thanks for hanging out with us today. We love to start off our interviews by asking our guests about their big three in astrology. So would you mind sharing yours? Yes, I am a Virgo sun, Aquarius moon and Virgo rising. Mm-hmm. And would you mind speaking just a little bit about what these placements mean to you? Yeah, well, I it's funny. I I
2: consider the Virgo sun, Aquarius moon combination to be the cosmic nerd. <laughs>
0: <laughs> I love that. Yeah,
2: I have a lot of friends who have it and we're all pretty much cosmic nerds, but um which means that there's like this orientation to details and this analytical, um, nerdy quality where we're very like earnest and detail oriented. And, um, and there is some sense of a purity or an innocence that can even get us into trouble. But then the, and there's also that desire to create order out of chaos. And then the moon in in Aquarius is is like very broad minded, very outside of the box, likes to create chaos out of order (laughs) and um, really likes to go into that multidimensional space. And so it's like applying that analysis and the detail orientation and that nerdiness to cosmic subject matter.
1: (laughs) Mm. And I know. I know we've had like a few astrologers on the podcast before, but I don't think we've ever specifically asked how they view like the sun, moon, and rising placements in general, um, and sort of like why the big three are so telling. So could you speak just a little bit about what these placements symbolize in our charts? Yes. So they're like the three layers of self in,
2: in terms of the primary personality and the primary self-expression. And, the uh, Rising sign or the ascendant is our outermost layer. It's the first impression that we make when we walk into a room. It's, um, how we begin a journey or a situation. Um, it's often how we start meeting somebody and asking them questions, um, Virgo rising, for example, since that's me is more discerning, right? It's more like the cat energy where we're sizing things up and noticing things with a somewhat critical eye before opening, whereas the opposite sign Pisces would begin with, I love you, (laughs) you're perfect. (laughs) (laughs) And, um, and, and it's, it's like how people perceive you who don't know you yet. So it's like how you uh, relate to the cashier or the taxi driver or, you know, people you're relating to on a more superficial level, but it also has something to do with um, our journey and our purpose, you know, so Virgo rising, there's that strong orientation toward sacred work, um, finding your sacred work and finding your sacred calling And then the sun is one layer deeper and that's the basic personality, how you relate to colleagues and friends and how you show up in your daily life. It's your um, basic expression of personality Um, and it's the light that you shine, you know, Um, and And then your moon is the deeper self. It's how you relate to intimate partnerships and family and people you live with. And it's your inner world, your, your sort of true self or your more hidden self, um, And so, you know, when I first started learning about astrology, I was really struck by these layers because I was so baffled by human complexity and I'd meet someone and they'd seem one way when I first met them and then we'd be in an intimate relationship and they'd be totally different, you know, or they'd be really nerdy in one context and then like a super... Confident out there person in like a sexual context or something like that. Or for me, it would be like very shy and awkward upon, upon first impression. And then with my family and close friends, I'd be very eccentric and out there and funny. Or when I was on stage as a ballet dancer, I was completely comfortable on stage, but totally shy in regular social settings. And my Mars is in, aqua- in sorry, my Mars is in Leo. So that kind of described. Those layers of complexity, and you know, is astrology was the first form of psychology, and Jung got much of of what he um, gleaned from about human psychology from astrology, and it's like that. I always have found it to be this very helpful, clear system that helps us understand illogical human complexity and the layers of self, and and the sun, moon, rising are the sort of primary layers of self that help us understand who we are and how we show up. You have two
0: Scorpio risings in the room with you. Oh
2: nice. I love Scorpio (laughs) rising. I love Scorpio anything, actually, because I'm like a very intimate person and 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 I love intimacy and intensity and a lot of people don't, but Scorpios (laughs) get down.
0: Mm -hmm. It's true. In your book, The Stars Within You, you wrote that astrology provides a link between the terrestrial world and the astral, the poetic and the scientific. So how did you become an astrologer and what has your journey been like in studying and reading charts?
2: Yeah, well, I started studying it when I was 18 and I was just working on this job and somebody brought the only book, sorry, the only astrology book you'll ever need. And I started looking up all my placements and reading about them. And I was like, how is this so specific and so accurate? And I was very scientific at that point. And I was really into physics and theoretical physics. And I studied physics my first year of college. And I wanted to find the loophole. Like I wanted to disprove it. So I kept studying it to find the loophole and to disprove it. You know, I'm like, this is a magic trick and I need to know how it works. Right. And the mm-hmm. more I studied it, the more accurate it became. And I really, like, suddenly people wanted me to read their charts all the time. And I would, and I went from feeling like an alien and not understanding people at all and vice versa to people like crying and telling me they felt like I understood them better than I understood themselves. And I'm like, how did that just happen? <laughs> you know? And I'm like, this is so odd that this thing is giving me that ability to sort of understand people and connect with them and to help them feel understood by me for the first time in my life. And so at some point I stopped trying to disprove it. And I stopped trying to explain why it worked you know, and I just accepted that it did. <laughs> and I was more interested in the experiential evidence of this working than I was in some kind of scientific explanation, even though there, there are scientific studies that have kind of proven it in certain ways, um, or, or proven its accuracy. But I give up on trying to prove it. And then um, I continued, I went to college, there were like lines out my door, people wanting to get readings from me. And it was just like mm-hmm. me doing it for fun. And then I lived in a Buddhist monastery and everybody wanted readings from me all the time, like people coming for retreats, the people who live there. And so, it, and when I'd go to parties, my friends would be like, read my boyfriend's chart. He doesn't believe in astrology. And I would, and then they'd get really embarrassed. I'm like, are you sure you want me to read your chart in front of everyone. They're like, I don't care. And then suddenly they'd be like, okay, stop. <laughs> Cause it was so <laughs> revealing <laughs> and then their minds would be blown. So it was sort of this party trick. And, um, and then I finally met an astrologer in, when I lived in Boulder, Colorado through my friend, um, who, and he always visited, uh, the local coffee shop. And I would just go and have these long conversations with him. And he overlaid our charts and he was like, you're supposed to make me famous. (laughs) And so (laughs) he he was like very taken with me and wanting to me to, to, you know, learn from him. And I was taking classes from him and he was filling in all the gaps of the more complicated layers of astrology. And he was really brilliant. His name was Kelly Lee Phipps. He was like a Renaissance man and it was fluent in Japanese and Japanese people said that he had perfect Japanese, the only white person they'd ever met with perfect Japanese. And he was a genius and knew everything about everything and uh, spirituality history science astrology everything and um and then he suddenly got brain cancer he was about 42 i believe and um 42 or 43 and uh and he died very quickly and during that time i would go visit him in the hospital and the the nurses would say, You're not allowed to be here. And he'd say, Well, she's not a human. She's an elf. She can be here. <laughs> <laughs> and so I would go visit him regularly. And, and during that time, he sort of empowered me to be a professional astrologer. And he had this vision of writing a book that would help bring astrology into the new age, set to begin in 2020 and help make it more mainstream. And he never did that. And he died. And then I became professional. And then shortly after going full time, a book publisher approached me and asked me to author a book on astrology. And it was very auspicious, like very Mm -hmm. mystical and auspicious, auspicious, Mm -hmm. the way it came together. And it really felt like Kelly was, um, I just got chills, but it was, was like kind of making this happen. And And as I was writing the book, it felt like I was channeling so much. And he and I both are sort of mystical people who have that ability to tune into spirits. And, um, and it did feel like we were in some kind of communication during the process of writing that book. And it felt like fulfilling his vision that he never got to complete. But I mean, that, that was my story of becoming an astrologer.
1: That's beautiful. I was going to ask like what your intention was, you know, behind writing the stars within you, but I feel like you answered that. It sounds like so much of it stemmed from that relationship.
2: Yeah. And, and there's a lot to say like about that book, but it was definitely rooted in Kelly and his vision. And I would have never written it if he had died, you know, which is also interesting, but, um, I, my personal vision, aside from fulfilling Kelly's vision was to create a book that was accessible to everyone, not just astrologers, you know, or, or not just people looking for entertainment, you know, but, but I wanted it to hit that balance of not skimping on depth and not skimping on even like spiritual resonance but still being simple enough to comprehend if you're beginning, you're just beginning, you know? And I was like, that book didn't exist, you know? And as I was learning astrology, I was constantly searching for this book that didn't exist. And I wanted to write that book and, and really offer it in that way. And I also, I've always been very turned off by new, the new age, you know, the new age movement and the new age aesthetics, And the whole notion of trying to create a culture separate from society. Um, And in my Buddhist background, that's not spirituality. It's to to like throw the baby out with the bathwater is not genuine spirituality. Spirituality is about transmutation and going inside of things and healing them from the inside out. If we start trying to surgically remove society or if we start trying to surgically remove parts of ourselves we don't like, then we're creating a, a binary. We're creating this sort of narrative of good and bad. And instead of, you know, understanding that all energy is basically good, that we have the capacity to heal and transmute from the inside out and to love, and it begins with loving all parts of ourselves. And why would we not apply that to also society? You know, and so I wanted to create a book that was not new age, that was not separate from society, and that celebrated, and even ethereal culture, my astrology um, sort of business name, title, and like everything I do for that. It's about kind of weaving in um, facets of culture and art and literature that contain that resonance of enlightened energy and exposing that right and beginning from the inside instead of beginning from the surgical discard if that makes sense and so the book was also you know written in an attempt to be spiritual and poetic and writerly and and to sort of capture people from also a a an artistic um point of view and and a cultural a more cultural point of view and i wanted it to be timeless right so not um Not of this time and not of any time, just sort of like this, its own energy of of timelessness that could be approached by anyone at any moment, if that makes sense.
0: Absolutely. And the artwork in it is so stunning. Like as you're speaking about it, I'm just flipping through my head of those illustrations and just their own beauty paired with the words.
2: Yeah. And the art is a huge part of the whole book and the transmission of the energy. And my, my friend illustrated it, Alejandro Cardenas, and I got him at this very auspicious moment right before his career blew up. And he was able to make these very exquisite detailed, um, illustrations. And he's also a Virgo with an Aquarius moon. So the cosmic Mm -hmm. nerd, (laughs) (laughs) which makes total sense. And, um, and yeah, he, he did such a beautiful job and, and part of my approach in that book is to really explain that astrology is an intuitive art, you know, and so really spending time with the images of the archetypes is important to learning those energies and to being able to tune into them and to speak about them um in from an intuitive place. And so that yeah, the art is so important in, in the whole transmission of the book.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, which reminds me, too, of like the importance of the inclusion of myth, like to draw on all of those stories to kind of like you're saying, to intuitively connect and, and talk about each sign, um, I think is just such a cool inclusion.
2: Yeah, I mean, I went to Sarah Lawrence, where Joseph Yay, Campbell. Oh, yeah, that's right. I forgot. <laughs> yeah. And Joseph Campbell, of course, was a professor there in his whole thing's myth. And I've always been really struck by myth and actually Alejandro my illustrator got me into Joseph Campbell when I was 18 years old um -hmm. (laughs) which makes sense and also and yeah myth is like to me it it's that's what astrology is and it's this it's fundamental to being human because without myth we don't have this framework to understand you know our human experience which is largely illogical and random you know (laughs) And our brains really don't like that. Like they don't like the sort of randomness or the things happening for no reason. And, and I think myth gives us this arc of meaning, you know, it gives us this framework of meaning so that when things happen to us, we're able to extract the lesson. We're able to extract the wisdom and to grow from it rather than just being needlessly pummeled and, I, and even, you know, aspects of ourselves. It's like, I think the mythology of astrology helps us to connect with these energies and essences of who we are and to learn how to celebrate our gifts and accept our, our struggles, you know, it, with this sort of objective clarity rather than judgment, you know, and discard, the surgical discard, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and, and our struggles are our gifts, right? Our struggles are also the places where we have to work harder and we become the master versus the places where we are naturally gifted and other people surpass us because we put no energy towards, you know. Mm-hmm.
0: So I'm, I'm curious, is was there one aspect of astrology that you struggled with or found difficult when you began studying that you now now love or have a different relationship with?
2: Well, I think I always focused on the the personal planets originally, and then it wasn't until Kelly started really explaining the the outer planets to me that I really got into those. Because now, I, and also, he didn't teach me about the asteroids. I learned on about those on my own. But you know, I think as a beginner, a beginning astrologer, you really focus on the personal planets like the sun, the moon, Venus, Mercury, Mars, and um, And the outer planets are really what give us our depth and and that really explain our kind of deeper karmic layers and the North and South nodes, you know, are really, to me, the most interesting part of a chart. And, and I didn't really dive into those or master those until later on in, um, you know, in my studies. And so I would say, Outer planets, asteroids, north and south nodes, you know, all were kind of things that came later that are now my my big passion um, in in focusing on and understanding. Um,
0: I remember taking a class with you in torrents about the nodes and my mind was like blown.
2: <laughs> yeah, the, the nodes explain so much. I mean, I always say you could just do an hour long reading about only the nodes and nothing else you know, and it's wild. Cause I do energy healing too. And sometimes I'll do energy healing with clients first. And then later on we'll do an astrological reading and what I'll see about their past lives ends up being in the, in the chart, you know? And so it really like astrology really is this powerful tool of divination that can talk to us about our, our, our expose our sort of past life struggles and stories, um, and tell us about, what happened to us in our past lives right and that that's in the nodes alone like if you just look at the nodes that it's all there. So I think that's like so powerful that you can glean so much from these two little points in the sky.
1: So speaking of nodes, can we talk a little bit about those like what are the nodes and what is a nodal return and how do we work with those energies? Yeah so the north node,
2: represents our highest evolutionary potential in this lifetime and it's where we are orienting in order to grow but it's also underdeveloped and unfamiliar territory. Uh, The south node is where we're overdeveloped but it's become a habit pattern. It's what we're trying to release and heal in this lifetime so we can step into our higher potential and this is by the way an evolutionary astrology take you know different astrologers in different schools of thought have different takes but i'm speaking about it from an evolutionary standpoint and uh so the south node is like the cocoon you know it's where it feels very familiar but we're in the dark and we're swimming in our own excrement and we're trapped right but we're like i'm safe this is familiar And the North node is exiting the cocoon where it's like scary and unfamiliar and it's too bright and our eyes are overwhelmed, but we're suddenly free and we can fly and explore this whole new world. And so that's, um, that's the journey. Um, I, Stephen Forrest, the evolutionary astrologer likes to say the South node is the bottle and the North node is the meeting, (laughs) right? So it's like the South nodes, the addiction and the, um, And the North node is the antidote to the addiction. And so, uh, looking at, uh, our North node, it's like, it's like, there's usually some level of discomfort around it. Like, ah, I don't want to go there. You know, for me, my North node is in Leo. And so I have a lot of neuroses around being seen. I don't want to be seen. I don't want to put myself out there. And yet my whole life, I've been putting myself out there, you know, and every time I do, I'm like, I grow so much, you know, and it feels like, aha, this is my true life path. Like even learning to public speak was like, it felt like it was going to kill me, you know, and then I would do it. And then it would like, have this huge spiritual impact on me or i would be like, Whoa, like that. It was like, I was channeling something or going into this powerful energy. And it just felt like that, that is what I was meant to be doing. It felt like some level of deeper fulfillment that I would have never chosen for myself, you know? And yet when I did, it was like, huh, okay. And, um, and I'm very uncomfortable with even admitting that, you know, um, which is very North node, you know? And so, Uh, I, I, we can also see people who have like North node Virgo where there's South nodes in Pisces and they might have issues around addiction or having trouble with organization or, um, boundaries. Right. And so going towards that, like, I have an everyday routine, I'm taking care of my health. I'm being good to myself. Like that's an unfamiliar territory, but when they orient to that, they're like, aha, you know, this is where I'm meant to be. Um, And so, yeah, a nodal return happens every 18 years. So 18 years old, 36 years old, et cetera. And when that happens, it's a moment of feeling some kind of powerful, potent alignment with your true life past. Um, And like, you kind of have clarity about what you're meant to be doing on on some level. Um, My 36-year-old nodal return happened to be the moment my book came out, which I didn't plan. You know, so that was like a ding, ding, ding. This is what I'm meant to be doing, you know?
0: Just got like truth bumps when you said that. Yeah, (laughs)
2: It's beautiful. Yeah. So I think, um, and there's there's also a reverse nodal return where the north node transiting in the sky hits your south node. And that's a moment of profound release that leads to your true life path. I have a friend in that right now and he's the Leo who just got sober, so...
0: My brain is doing like the spinning thing. I'm like, wow, where am I? (laughs) Stuck in the stars. I'd love to talk a little bit about Saturn. Um, I loved your in- introduction in Liz Green's book, Saturn. It's in- an incredible book. Um, but Saturn moves into Pisces the day that this episode will go live, March 8th, I mm-hmm. think. So, what do our new Saturn return folks need to know? And any uh advice or insights for our Saturn and Aquarius friends uh on integrating the lessons of of their Saturn return
2: yeah well in general I'll say Saturn moving into Pisces is sort of to me a welcome relief right we've had Saturn in signs that Saturn rules Aquarius and Capricorn for the last five years and it's been brittle you know like Saturn's Mm -hmm. already brittle and then when it's in these signs that rules it's extra brittle and in Aquarius when it moved into Aquarius that was the beginning of lockdown and pandemic and In the US. And there was that feeling of isolation, right? That feeling of Saturn kind of takes things away from us. And, and it teaches us through that, that act of taking things away from us, we learn through contrast. And it, Aquarius is community it's group activities right so it, it took that away from us but it also is an in, put an emphasis on it like this is where we need to roll our sleeves up this is where we have work to do and that was also the beginning of the George Floyd protests and the BLM movement and you know this mass awakening and culturally around the story of racial oppression that we've been largely ignoring because of white fragility and things like that. And so that is also Saturn Aquarius. Like, okay, we've got work to do on the humanitarian level. We've got to roll our sleeves up and take inventory, right? That's Saturn. We've got to unpack the suitcase and like really look at things and decide what needs reorganizing. What do we need to include? What do we need to discard? And if what we're including, how does it need to be reintegrated? Um, and so now that it's moving out of aquarius i think it's going to be a big relief and pisces is such a different energy it's the energy of water and submersion and unity and oneness and um and so saturn's going to kind of get dunked into that ocean of oneness and like soften some of its brittle edges you know and i i also think it's going to be a time of um of having a shared reality, like coming into a, a new shared reality, right? It's like Saturn is reality and, uh, Pisces is the great interconnector. And so we've been so like conspiratorial and disconnected in our versions of reality for a while now. And I think this is going to help bring us back together and it could help, you know, really reel in addiction Right. Because Pisces can be addiction and mental illness. And like there could be huge shifts in having mainstream access to things that uh, are helpful in terms of addiction and mental illness. We just saw right now, like in the past week, that it's now not it's now over the counter to buy that drug that prevents overdose. So you don't have to get a prescription for it. And so that is a tiny example of what we might see coming and also like the mainstream use of um, psychedelics or plant medicines, um, that kind of thing. And so I, I'm i looking forward to it. And I think that also Pisces has had Jupiter and Neptune moving through it for a while. And those are the two co-rulers of Pisces. So we've had too much Pisces energy, right? It's been too much boundarylessness, too much disconnection from reality. And so Saturn moving in is going to help bring this containment and sort of, you know, corral the horses, you know, mm-hmm. and, and help us. I'm a Texan, but help us like, <laughs> <laughs> help us kind of pull things together that have been too out of bound, like too out of control. And, I am looking forward to that personally and for people having their Saturn returns, um, for anyone in their Saturn return, this is a huge rite of passage and a huge transition. And the way I describe it moving from the first 30 years to the second 30 years is we're moving from becoming 30 years of becoming who am I, who am I, who am I, which is quite painful, what is reality? What is the world? What is adulthood? Right. And, and then it's transitioning into being like, this is who I am and mastering, this is what I'm committing to and what I'm committed to mastering. And so there's a huge relief, I think, you know, from before the Saturn return to after the Saturn return. And I think that there's been a lot of pain for people who haven't had their Saturn returns yet to come into adulthood during this incredibly confusing time. First there was the Trump presidency and then there was the pandemic and that's been the last many years, six years. And so it, and they're now turning 27, 28. So it's like most of their, Adult life has been incredibly confusing. And this process of becoming and understanding the world and reality has been in many ways disorienting. And so I think that this transition for the people having their Saturn returns now is going to be like, you know what? We've been observing the clusterfuck, sorry if I can't <laughs> of reality and adulthood for the past how many years? And now we're going to start building the next version of reality you know, instead of just witnessing and feeling existential crises, that this is what the world is, we're now stepping into our mastery and beginning to build and take and participate in building the next iteration of reality. And they're also having their Saturn returns at this moment of Pluto moving into Aquarius, which is Mm -hmm. rebirthing humanity, you know, and really beginning to, um, to to birth that next iteration of humanity instead of fighting the patriarchy and fighting the old ways, uh, which has been Pluto and Capricorn. Uh, so it's, it, we're at a, a big transition moment. And I think it's going to be a relief, you know, for, especially for people having their Saturn returns.
0: Yeah. And maybe even like pop culturally not widely accepted or said, but I actually really enjoyed my Saturn return. <laughs>
2: I like feel,
0: I feel better.
2: (laughs) Yeah. I mean, I can't say I enjoyed my, I think it was a mixed bag for me, (laughs) but yeah, I mean, I, I moved to the monastery, uh, during my Saturn Well, Saturn was hitting my ascendant, then my son, and then my Mm -hmm. Saturn return happened. And, uh, so it was all of that was happening while I moved to the monastery, which was so much about discipline, you know, and, really raining in it, my Saturn's conjunct my mercury so it was raining in my mind my ascendant is my physical body literally sitting up straight you know um having that containment of self but it was also like I had so much feedback you know it was like living in this monastery where you eat together work together sleep together you know like everything together and practice together you have a constant mirror you're you're being witnessed 24 7 and you can't hide. And so I think there was a lot of pain. And what often how I describe the Saturn return is somebody finally points out that you've had like, you've been walking around naked your whole life, you know, (laughs) and you didn't realize, or you've had toilet paper on your shoe and nobody told you or whatever, you have schmutz on your face or something, you know, it's like you didn't know. And then suddenly someone points it out and you're so embarrassed, but then you're like, I've got to recalibrate now. Or it's also you're cute, you're young, you can get away with things. And then suddenly it's like, you're not so cute and young anymore. <laughs> you actually need to grow up and take responsibility. <laughs> I don't know, but I'm glad yours was fun. Most people would not say that. <laughs> well,
0: I don't know if it was fun. I just, I think it was, I just find, I, I enjoyed it in a way of like, this is like, it feels like a rite of passage sort of thing. And to like, know that it was happening, I guess was, was, empowering versus like it happening and then years later understanding what was going on astrologically I think that would have been stressful but to know about it felt like a like a secret or something you know
2: totally that makes sense yeah and I do think Saturn transits are painful but ultimately a relief Mm -hmm. because it's like in Buddhism we used to say discipline brings joy You know, and it's that kind of necessary growth and maturation and foundation building, you know, that isn't fun. But then we have so much more joy and freedom once we're through it.
0: I love that because like in a poetry class, we say uh, constraint gifts creativity. So it's a similar sort of sentiment.
1: Totally. I love that. So, Juliana, there's a spring eclipse season headed our way how do you view eclipses in your practice and do you have any insights for what's to come? Yeah.
2: So eclipses are really powerful. They happen twice a year usually. And, um, and it's when we have a new moon or full moon on one of the lunar nodes, which is basically, uh, the place on e- the places on either side of earth where the lunar pass and the solar path meet because they're on different kind of, parallel like they're on different paths that aren't running parallel they're slightly off kilter and so they form this like x on either side of earth and that's the north and south node so when we have a new moon or full moon at one of those points it's an eclipse the new moon is the solar eclipse and the full moon is the lunar eclipse and they're basically new moons and full moons on steroids so it's exaggerated new beginnings and exaggerated releases and in the time periods between eclipses it's a very very karmic powerful time of rapid growth and rapid karmic ripening um and it I actually love those periods because, well, I love intensity as I already revealed, but um, (laughs) (laughs) it also feels like extra magical and auspicious and like the things that come up and the people you run into and the conversations you have all hold extra weight and significance. Um, And there's also a lot of truth revealing. Like if someone's lying to you, often those truths will be exposed during that time and there's a rapid recalibration of karma, right? So if something's off, this is a time when things might explode or, or rapidly and intensely recalibrate. Um, and so the positions of the lunar nodes, the signs that they're falling in, really explain the flavor of our karmic lessons. And this year, the lunar nodes are changing signs. They're going from the Scorpio-Taurus axis: South Node Scorpio, North Node Taurus onto the libra aries axis so this is going to be a great relief too. kind of like saturn moving into pisces where we have the south end moving out of scorpio which is like the hell realms opening up and all of our (laughs) shadows releasing and you know it's like all the intensity coming out from behind the curtain and and it's moving into libra which is much gentler and more balanced and but it's also very much about love right i think that we're um there's a huge focus this year on recalibrating relationships and healing our self-confidence and self-worth in the context of relationships and finding that beautiful balance between Aries and Libra of feeling a confidence that is de- that is detached from other right so it's like we don't need validation from other to feel confident in ourselves And, and then, and then also releasing these sort of old relational patterns that are no longer working. And it's also an empowerment of the Pluto Libra generation, which is Gen X, whose karmic mission as a generation was to rebirth relationships, right? We grew up, I'm Gen X, we grew up with like you know, divorced parents and broken homes. And, you know, there is this intensity and the lack, a lack of relational and psychological tools in our households and just a lot of calamity and fighting. And we haven't stepped into our generational karmic mission yet, you know? And so I think that um, Pluto moving into Aquarius, which will form a trine with our Pluto and then the South node moving into Libra are both going to be these sort of trigger points of, of that work you know, that we're ultimately all here to do, which is recalibrating relationships and understanding them in a more nuanced and uh, a more nuanced way and a more evolved way.
1: Kate and I both have Pluto in the first house. So you just mentioned Pluto moving into Aquarius. And can you just explain a little bit more about that and what that means for us collectively? Yeah. Yeah.
2: Well, Pluto is the slowest moving planet. It moves in 248 year cycles. So it packs a punch wherever it's moving or falling. It's got a huge, (laughs) massive punch. And Pluto changing science is a huge deal, you know, because if you think about it, it's been 240 plus years since Pluto has been in Aquarius. And, um, and it's been in Capricorn for the last 15 or so years. So Mm. now in, um, in Aquarius, we are, as I I was mentioning earlier, moving out of this Pluto Capricorn phase, which has been intense, intense, intense. We also had Saturn and Jupiter there, and they were all conjoining at various points and throughout 2020. And, um, and now we're going into Pluto Aquarius, which is less about the, you know, if you think about what Pluto means, it's destruction, death and rebirth. And so we have been destroying you know, and rebirthing Capricorn, which is our systems and structures and our society and our norms, our societal norms. It's also patriarchy and um, patriarchal oppression and societal oppression, right? And so Pluto has been like really wanting to confront and destroy and rebirth all of those things, which is kind of intense, right? It's like the structures of our lives kind of going into like a volcano, you know, <laughs> and uh, all of our norms, like being thrust into a volcano. And um and so now, with Pluto moving into Aquarius, there's a new emphasis. There's a new generational emphasis. There's a new generation that's being born. And there's a new collective emphasis. And so we're coming out of that destroying and rebirthing patriarchy and our societal norms, and we're stepping more into, like, birthing this next iteration of humanity or as i call aquarius enlightened society you know aquarius is the pinnacle of human potential it's the second to last sign in the zodiac before piscean transcendence right so it's it's the the last stop before transcendence and what is the last stop before transcendence it's creating an enlightened society right it's not about an individual path it's about this collective path where we're all coming together to co-create a society where all beings have their basic needs met and all beings can attain enlightenment because they have the causes and conditions, um, in place. And so, uh, that to me is the first step of Pluto and Aquarius is making sure we have a society where everyone has their basic needs met. Um, and I think with Jupiter moving into Taurus too, there's going to be an emphasis on slowing down four-day work weeks, recalibrating money, making it easier financially for all of us, like acknowledging the difference in that we now have both parents working, so we can't survive off a single salary anymore, but we also can't survive off of five-day work weeks with, uh, for both parents anymore, you know? And so there's a lot, I think, that's going to be um, coming up to to create a more enlightened society and to uh, even instill more, I hate to say it, but socialist values, even though that's a bad word for some people, but more values where we all have access to healthcare, you know, and we all have access to clean water and we all have access to good foods that's not processed and bad for you or that causes diabetes. And and so I think those are gonna start um, becoming enacted more. And also it's technology, You know, so I think we're going into a period of rapid growth around technology and also potentially crises around technology and thinking about the um, potentials of technological innovation. And also as they start changing the world and changing the way we live, it's also addressing the crises that come with that kind of intense change in technological empowerment you know um so i mean there's so many things to say but i i mean aquarius is also democracy right and so i think it's going to be a powerful time for democracy uh versus this sort of capricorn is more about this top down hierarchical power and authoritarianism and we saw a lot of authoritarian rulers kind of rise during the pluto Capricorn period. And Pluto and Aquarius is, you know, the power is shifting more towards democracy and egalitarianism.
1: And for those of us wanting to explore, you know, Pluto moving into Aquarius and how that influences them on a personal level, how would they do that? Like, what should we be looking for in our charts?
2: Well, look for zero degrees Aquarius, because that's where Pluto... Is beginning its journey, and that's where we're going to feel this first impact of Pluto's changing signs and changing of signs. And so, um, whatever house it's in in your chart is explaining where you're having this big moment of crisis and rebirth. Um, so it also is connected to what personal planets you have there so if you have any personal planets or points or angles uh, at zero to five degrees Aquarius or zero to five degrees of any fixed sign Pluto is going to really affect you in this shift into Aquarius and you're going to and you're already probably feeling it I know I am I have my south node at zero Aquarius and my moon at one Aquarius <laughs> so wow. I'm a yeah, it's like definitely something I'm feeling right now. But, you know, that, that's, it's a big, huge karmic activation. And as I said, Pluto, I mean, it's a once in many lifetimes transit, right? It's like not everyone has Pluto hitting their personal planets in this lifetime. You know, their sun, their moon, their ascendant. It's like, it, it's it's rare. It's more rare than not rare, actually. And so if you're having a transit like that, you're ready for a huge karmic purge you know a huge kind of recalibration of old ancient energies and you know you're ready for that release and rebirth
0: it's intimidating <laughs> <laughs> I'm, I'm into so...
2: it usually into it two years scorpio rising
0: i <laughs> know i'm like sun saturn mercury and aquarius so i was just thinking i'm gonna have to look at what degrees they're mm-hmm. all at but
2: that's rad. I mean, I'm into it. Like, it's been super intense. You know, obviously, it's been intense. Pluto is so intense, but I'm also all about it. You know, because I'm mm. kind of like, let's dive to the depths and go there and pure go. Yeah, <laughs> I I think it's a it's a good thing. I think it's like also all the Aquarians are getting this big empowerment right now and you know, Pluto is so intimate and it's like sexual and it's in the body and, and, um, Aquarius can be kind of like in the clouds, right? Like kind of disconnected or disassociated. And so I really feel like it's bringing Aquarius into the body in this like very deep, intimate way. It's like making Aquarius intimate, if that makes sense. Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah. I'm just thinking about like the myth of Pluto too, and like Mm -hmm. how he appears as the, the God and ruler of the underworld.
2: Yeah. Well, it's, it's like the myth of Persephone is also connected to Pluto. And I love that myth because it's like, she had to go to the underworld, face her deepest fears, face abuse, face rape, face hell realms, you know, and abduction and loss of power and control of her life. Right. And then she emerges and sets the flowers in bloom. You know, she tames the giant bull that no one else can tame, who everyone's afraid of. And she befriends him because she's not afraid of anything. because She's already faced everything she could possibly face that's, uh, that she would fear. And then she can be fully present with the sensual uh, beauty of spring. Because she's faced the shadows, because she's faced the hell realms, right? So we wouldn't wish the hell realms on anyone, but they happen, right? The hell realms happen to us. And when they do, it's an opportunity for surrender, facing our fears, meeting our shadows and becoming more impenetrable and whole and ultimately becoming more present with sensual experience and beauty, you know? And so Pluto is the ayahuasca ceremony, Pluto is the near-death experience, you know? Pluto is like literally facing our mortality and the reality of death and receiving the wisdom of that experience, you know? It's it's what we are talking about with transmutation. It's going inside of the fucked upery and creating the transmutation from the inside out rather than extracting things and discarding them or ignoring them right? You can't ignore anything with Pluto, right? You can't ignore anything. If you're in an ayahuasca ceremony, it just goes straight into you and pulls it out and throws it in your face. So that's Pluto. And so it, it is like a massive invitation for spiritual up-leveling.
0: I'm going to put that above my desk. The hell realms happen. <laughs> Love that.
2: <laughs> yeah. And the last thing I'll say is like, if you have a Pluto transit coming, get ahead of it get into therapy, do the ayahuasca ceremony or the combo or whatever you're, you're feeling called to do, you know, like do the deep dive, go to Huffman Institute, right? Do the deep dive into facing your shadows and the things that you're afraid of get sober. You know, um, I have a lot of Leo friends getting sober right now because they feel Pluto coming in opposition to their sun and moon. Mm -hmm. And, and so you want to get ahead of it so you don't have to learn through crisis, right? Often we learn through the near-death experience, but if you get ahead of Pluto, it doesn't need to be that, right? <laughs> um, it's like you're already on that journey of transmutation ahead of time. I'm curious,
0: do you see retrogrades in a similar way or or do you see them differently than eclipses or Pluto transits?
2: Different, yeah. When a planet is retrograding, it's an empowering time for that energy. It's a time of really going into that energy in a deep way and feeling its internal power and and going into deep reflection around whatever that planet represents. It also releases the, the veil. And so the veils are thinner. There's more potential for like auspicious coincidence and psychic communication and connection and magic and things like that. But it's a time for recalibration, reflection, review, and really getting to know that energy on a on a more internal level. Um, so we do have Venus retrograding later this year in Leo, which I think is so interesting because it's like the south nodes in Libra, which is purifying and adjusting our relationships, and then and and then the north nodes in Aries, which is finding that independent self-confidence. And then Venus retrograding in Leo, I think it's going to bring up a lot of issues around physical appearance and social media and feeling like we need to look a certain way and get fillers and injections to look perfect on social media, you know, and, and like also the self-confidence issues, you know, connected to feeling like we need to look perfect all the time um because there's so much happening in the two-dimensional reality on our phones. Um, but it, and also a recalibration of art and artistic creation, where it could be a course correction or an adjustment in, in course around creative pursuits. Um, there's so I mean there's so much to say about it, but it, it is like, you know, eclipses are a time of profound release and stepping into our karmic ripening. And a retrograde is about profound recalibration, reflection, and review, and stepping into a deeper relationship with the planet that's retrograding.
0: You also speak about mythology in your book, like we've kind of talked about a little bit here already, but in one part, you say that mythology is fundamental to being human. So can you expand on that? And then what is your personal relationship to myth?
2: Yeah. Um, well, I I did speak about that a little bit already, but just feeling like um, that we need that arc of meaning to understand life and reality and what we're feeling. And that throughout history throughout human history we've always had story we've always had myths and that's helped us create the shared frameworks of meaning where we don't only have that framework of meaning individually but as a a culture as a society right and i think i mean i'm an aquarius moon so i'm very interested in uh, the collective and how we're all working together even within our individual communities. And I think we do need shared a shared framework for of meaning in order to have a meaningful community or in order to have a meaningful society. And that's what myth does. Um and for me, it's like I am someone who feels very deeply I am someone who feels everything you know it's like I, in human design I'm what's called a mental projector which is like being a reflector where all my channels are open and I have no inner authority and I think that's part of why I'm good at astrology because I can feel the energies of the planet or I can tune into the energies of whoever's in front of me But that also means, especially being a Virgo Virgo and and an analytical person, I want to make sense of things. I want to um, kind of neaten up my feelings and put them in logical frameworks so that they're digestible, right? Those are all keywords for Virgo. But it's like, um, I want to be able to have clarity around what I'm feeling. Um, And when difficult things are happening, I want to be able to like, put that in a framework that makes sense so that it can be a blessing and not a curse. Right. I've, you know, I've had a lot of death in my life. I have Venus conjunct Pluto in my chart and a lot of my friends have died. And without that mythology or the arc of meaning that I got from Buddhism and the the Buddhist myth of what death is and how death works, right. I, I wouldn't have survived all that grief. Um, And I think in in understanding ourselves, it's the same thing and and understanding the currents of where we are in our lives and what we're feeling. So it's, it's like, for example, I'm definitely in a Pluto moon situation right now. Like a lot of Pluto moon has stuff has been coming up for me in Pluto South node. So that's the transit I'm in. And it's been super freaking intense. But I have the mythological framework of astrology to be like, this is right on time. <laughs> you know. Mm-hmm. This is where the highest potential is in my experiencing this level of intensity. This is the potential growth and healing that is available to me now. And so rather than feeling like a victim of my circumstances, I'm kind of like, let's do this. You know, I know I have an opportunity to heal ancestral karma right now. I know I have an opportunity to transform and transmute my deepest childhood wounds right now. I know I have a chance to really like step into motherhood right now, if I want that, you know, in a powerful way and to clear the debris to step onto that path, you know, and to step into deeper emotional intimacy with myself and others. Right. So, Without that framework, I would just possibly be at the mercy of my intense feelings. Um, rather than in this attitude of bring it on, I'm ready, you know, and I've been prepared. Does that make sense? Absolutely.
1: And what is something that you're looking forward to right now? Or like what what are you most excited about right now? Oh, (laughs) (laughs) big question.
2: Well, a couple of things. I'm working on my next, my second book and which I'm really excited about, which is just generally on the subject of love. And I'm excited for Saturn to hit my descendant because my descendant's at zero Pisces. So I've got Pluto hitting my moon and Saturn on my descendant. So this is a very intense karmic relational moment for me.
1: And I'm like,
2: actually really excited for it. I'm like ready to sort of up level in my life around my relational understanding and maturation and to go into a true deep connection that is sane and sensible, but also, you know, intimate, which I think, I don't think I've ever figured out until now I'm starting to. So I'm excited
1: for that. Yeah, we're definitely excited for your next book. We'll be waiting for it.
2: Yeah, it's so fun to write. I've been like interviewing so many couples that have such interesting connections and so many connections and karmic links and powerful energies together and to sort of hear their stories and then see what's happening in their charts has been the most fun I've ever had in work in my life. (laughs) That's
0: such a cool project.
2: Mm -hmm. Ah. I love it. (laughs) And
0: sadly, I think that we are running out of time, although I would love to just sit here and talk stars with you forever. Mm -hmm. But um, before we go, where can our listeners find your work?
2: Well, my book is called The Stars Within You, A Modern Guide to Astrology. It's an introduction to astrology that we were talking about earlier that's beautifully illustrated by Alejandro Cárdenas, who's one of the best artists in the world. And uh, also, I have an Instagram, Ethereal Culture, and a website, etherealculture.com. And I have a Patreon page where I post podcasts and classes regularly. It's um, patreon.com forward slash astrologer.
0: Thank you so much for joining us today, Juliana, and listeners on Magic and Alchemy, a podcast from Tamed Wild. Again, we're Kate Ballou and Kristen Lizenby. You can find us online at K8Ballou and at East End Alchemy. Send us all of your questions and comments, or just say hello via email at podcast at tamedwild.com. You can view all of the amazing offerings from Tamed Wild on their Instagram at tamedwild or on the blog tamedwild.com.
1: Tune into next week's episode for another magical conversation. Just a reminder that magic and alchemy are always available to those who know where to look for it. So mode it be or something better. Until next time.